Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a new partnership aims to stop kids from ingesting marijuana edibles. And crime rates here and across the country are starting to level out after seeing big spikes during the pandemic. But first, Governor Katie Hobbs is condemning far-fledged allegations that she and others, other state leaders like Adrian Fontes and the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors were taking bribes from Mexican cartels. The testimony came from a February 23rd Joint Elections Committee hearing in the state legislature in which a Gilbert insurance agent was given free reign to spout what amounts to conspiracy theories that have been tied back to her boyfriend's divorce filings. In the days after the testimony spread online, and now many GOP leaders are attempting to distance themselves from it and are pointing the finger looking for someone to blame for the committee, which is run by state senator and notable election denier Wendy Rogers for going off the rails. Here to dissect all of the ins and outs of this one is Hank Stevenson of the Arizona Agenda. Good morning to you, Hank. Hank, do we have you on the line there? Looks like we may be. Oh, Hank, I think I heard you. Come on. Are you there? Can you hear me? I can hear you now. All right. Okay. let's begin, Hank, with this committee, which, as I said, is run by Wendy Rogers. This isn't the first time we've seen conspiracy theories in this committee, right? No, this is a joint committee of the legislature's two elections committees, and it would be more accurate if they just called it the legislature's joint committee on conspiracies. Um, like, but both the House and Senate elections committees have heard some really weird stuff about elections this year, but this particular committee hearing was just over the top. And the main conspiracy in question that you mentioned, the Sinaloa cartel deed scam, it's not even exactly clear how that related to election fraud. Mm. It was mostly just accusing basically every politician, civic organization, certain police forces in town, uh, prosecutors of being in on this land deed scam with the Sinaloa cartel. But there were a few elections officials mixed in there, so I guess it became an election conspiracy. And in case it needs to be said, there is no there there to this mm-hmm. uh, conspiracy. It's pure junk. They've offered up nothing that even comes close to backing up their wild assertions so far. So tell us about this particular hearing. This was organized by Representative Liz Harris, who is also an election denier. And you're reporting a sort of a concession for her vote on the GOP's skinny budget. Yeah, you'll remember a few weeks ago, Republican lawmakers sent Governor Hobbs a skinny budget, a budget that basically doesn't include any new spending over what's required by law. The governor obviously vetoed that. um, But before they sent that to her, there was a little hiccup in the House. Harris had promised to vote against every bill until until Arizona redid its 2022 election, which was a really wild promise to make, considering there are only the bare minimum number of Republicans needed to get a bill out of the House Mm -hmm. without Democratic support. Um, So she initially wouldn't vote for this budget and it failed. And a couple of days later, uh, Republican lawmakers came back and said, "Okay, we're going to try this again. 
and immediately put up an agenda for uh, this hearing that, you know, had everything she wanted to uh, kind of air um, going on in it. So this was essentially, you know, a, a bribe to get her to vote for this budget. And when Republican leaders did get her back up there, you know, get, did get this back up for a vote, she switched her vote. And mm. this was the concession for that. Okay, so then let's talk about the fallout, which is kind of still playing out now. GOP leaders, even Wendy Rogers and Liz Harris, seem to have sort of found a line here that they aren't willing to cross with this particular testimony. Why? Well, I think in part because uh, the the testifier named Wendy Rogers in her documents, among other lawmakers, as being in on this Sinaloan cartel scam, right. um, which was really just the cherry on top of this whole sad Sunday that, that they put together. Um, I'm sure the legislature's lawyers' ears perked up significantly when they heard um, names being named mm -hmm. uh, and probably defamed there. There could be some legal consequences for this because it was just so crazy yet so specific. You don't usually hear uh, these kind of conspiracies wrap in, uh, you know, every major political player in the state by name. Mm -hmm. And Maricopa County uh, recorder Stephen Richer, for example, is already talking about a possible defamation suit for the stuff they said against him. Wow. So that also brings us to these latest comments from the governor yesterday. Is 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 she considering legal action here? Well, she said she's considering all options, but it didn't really seem like her heart was in it, in part because she was saying that, you know, it is very difficult to win a uh, defamation lawsuit against a public official and for a public official. There are kind of different rules on what can be said about these people. Mm -hmm. That said, this stuff went pretty far. Uh, so there, you may see others file lawsuits. I wouldn't be surprised if... You know, run back election services, one of the uh, organizations, uh, third party vendor that prints ballots for Arizona. Um, they were named very prominently as among the you know people who had taken bribes from the Sinaloa cartel. So we could see some sort of lawsuit come out of this. I, I think everyone's kind of waiting around with bated breath now to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about how GOP leaders are now sort of distancing themselves from this and looking for someone to blame. Who is going to take the blame? Probably just Liz Harris, uh, which is a real shame because there's a lot of blame to go around here. Um, the committee met with the blessing of the House Speaker and the Senate President. Uh, they said they didn't know that it would be that crazy that this person would be offering this testimony, but really they should have. Um, and this is a really good moment for all of the Republican leaders at the Capitol to look at the, look in the mirror and look at the kind of environment that they're creating by giving so much power to their fringiest members. But, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of faith that that's going to be the result of all this. All right. We'll leave it there. Hank Stevenson of the Arizona Agenda joining us as he does on Wednesdays. Hank, thanks as always. Talk to you soon, Lauren.
Last year saw an increase in the number of pediatric poison control cases tied to cannabis-related products. Out of 739 total cannabis incidents, 394 involved children, and 60% of those cases involved a trip to the hospital. In an, in an effort to help curb these incidents, the Arizona Dispensaries Association and the Arizona Poison and Drug Information Center are announcing a new partnership to raise awareness about the potential dangers associated with access accidental cannabis ingestion, particularly in children. Eddie Salaya covers uh, the cannabis industry and hosts the Here We'd Go podcast for the Arizona Daily Star in Tucson. And he joins me now to talk more about this new partnership. Good morning, Eddie. Good morning, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on. So I want to begin with the data here. Like I mentioned a big number there in the intro, 394 cases involving kids. How much of an increase does that represent? Uh, It's a pretty big increase from the last year. I I don't have the exact numbers uh, on me right now, but uh, when I talked to Stephen Dudley of the Arizona Poison and Drug Information Center, he noted that it was up to up to 210 cases last year alone, uh, just dealing with children younger than five. Wow. Okay. So we should talk about what this looks like too, right? Like edibles don't often look like a marijuana or a medication of any kind. Like kids often, I'm guessing, don't know what they're eating. Yeah, you know, um, it's it's real unlikely that kids are able to to grind up flour or, or get a hold of uh, uh, pre rolls and light those up. But edibles, uh, number one, they they look like candy. Oftentimes, they can taste like candy. And if they're left in places where kids can get a hold of them, um, it's it's always possible uh, with what they do uh, and mm-hmm. their curiosity that they get into those sort of things and the the effects uh, of those edibles on children. Uh, those effects on adults can can be a, a little bit uh, surprising sometimes, but mm-hmm. on children, uh, especially smaller children, uh, they, they can be quite frightening, some of the, uh, the side effects. So tell us about those. Like what happens to a little kid who might come across these? So uh, the effects of cannabis edible ingestion for young children, uh, according to the National Capital Poison Center, uh, can include vomiting, dizziness, difficulty waking up, rapid heart rates, drowsiness, confusion, and breathing difficulties, and in severe cases, hallucinations, Mm. abnormally slow heart rates, and sometimes even seizures. Do we know what it does to like a little child's developing brain? There's a lot of talk about what happens in teenagers, right? Um, yeah, so psychologically, it can have a really deleterious effect. Um, I, I'd be interested to see if there's any studies done uh, longitudinally on kids that got into that. Um, mm-hmm. But we do know that it, it can definitely, um, even when adults take it, they can have a little bit of a break. Um, when kids take it, they can almost, uh, I've heard it described as acting inappropriately. Mm. Um and I, I'm not sure what that necessarily entails, but uh, I'm imagining it would be very frightening for an uh, for a parent or adult uh, just seeing a child while they are, I guess, kind of tripping on these things. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this new partnership, which is aimed at preventing this from happening. Right. Like, how will this mm-hmm. work? So basically, as part of this, the uh, the Arizona Dispensary Associations has teamed up with the Poison Control Centers here in in Arizona, and th- they're distributing window clings uh, to to the member dispensaries, which is about two thirds of the dispensaries here in the state, uh, that include a QR code, and that QR code takes consumers or patients uh, to an ADA website uh, with a link 
uh, for of education and information uh, of, regarding like how to keep edibles safe from children, away from children, and also giving parents kind of a, a guideline uh, of what to do if God forbid their children were to get in yeah. to those edibles. What does that involve? Like, is it just a, a call to poison control first? Uh, pretty much. Uh, there's also some like, hey, you know, check their vital signs, um, you know, check for a fever. If they're not able, if their child has fallen asleep and not able to wake up, call poison control. Uh, kind of a, a, a guideline, if you will, to... Uh, what could be a very frightening incident if it were to occur. Yeah. Last couple of minutes here, Eddie, I want to talk about another part of this. They're also talking about unregulated products here. What, uh, what does that mean? So unregulated in this sense, uh, at least when I was talking with the ADA, has to do with hemp-derived products. And the difference between hemp and marijuana is part science, part politics, but basically any plant containing more than 0.3% of THC, which is the main psychoactive compound in, in cannabis, is considered marijuana. Anything under that is hemp. Mm. Uh, but since they're so closely related, hemp can be derived into, uh, you can get that THC out of it, uh, whether it's Delta 8, Delta 9, or Delta 10. Uh, and those products are sold uh, not in dispensaries, but pretty much anywhere. They could be in gas stations, convenience stores, mm. uh, grocery stores, some of them. And those those products are not subject to the battery of tests currently uh, that uh, products found in, in marijuana dispensaries in the state are. But there is legislation in the state legislature now, right, aimed at addressing that? Yes, there is. Uh, it It is working its way through State Bill 1271. Um, the, the big, the big, difference, I guess you would say, is that currently right now, the Arizona Department of Health Services oversees the marijuana industry. Uh, this bill would keep the hemp industry under the purview of the uh, Department of Agriculture in mm. the state. Uh, and that's something that the, uh, the Hemp Trade Association was really advocating for. So lastly, Eddie, you talked about the rise in these cases with kids here and, and what, you know, this particular partnership is trying to do in Arizona. Have we seen this problem happen in other states that have legalized recreational marijuana? What does it look like there? Almost to a state. This is wow. uh, something that we've uh, that we've seen in Colorado. There has been a, a huge jump uh, and uh, there's been a lot of coverage of that out there uh, throughout the country since I believe uh Records were starting to be kept in 2017 by the CDC. Uh, the numbers have gone up significantly. Um, accidental marijuana poisonings in children have increased, sometimes requiring visits to the emergency room. Uh, it's for That's what a recent CDC report said. All right, we'll leave it there. Eddie Salaya covers the cannabis industry, hosts the Here Weed Go podcast for the Arizona Daily Star in Tucson. Eddie, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Definitely. Hope to talk to you again. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a different kind of parenting book, A Father's Unashamed Retrospective. We'll hear from the author about his turbulent journey as a parent. But first, violent crime rates across America spiked during the pandemic. Social and economic instability, stay-at-home orders, and societal unrest caused us to see high rates of things like homicides, domestic violence, and robberies. Now things are starting to level out, though crime rates still largely sit above 2019 levels, when we had been seeing a decades-long decline in most kinds of crime. 
In Arizona, the overall picture looks pretty good, according to our next guest. Charles Katz is the director of the Center for Violence Prevention and Community Safety at ASU, and I spoke with him more about these trends. Well, things are still reacclimating or stabilizing from COVID. You know, we were at a fairly low point in terms of crime throughout the United States, as well as here in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And when COVID hit, we had a number of changes that took place in the country, as well as stay-at-home orders. There was a great deal of stress within communities and families. There's been an enormous amount of stress on people over that period. And what we found was that homicides really took off at around mm-hmm. 2021. We saw them really move up substantially. And now we're sort of in a phase where things are stabilizing and, and slowly moving back to the way they were. That does not mean that they'll go back to where they were prior to COVID. Yeah. Uh, they probably move to a, to a different point uh, and stabilize at a different point based on different changes that may have taken place over the past uh, five years or so. Yeah. So, I mean, that is that frustrating as somebody from your point of view? Like we were on this decades long decline in crime rates across the country and then this huge spike. And we're, as you said, starting to level out. But it seems like we'll hit a new normal, like we're never going to go back to 2019 levels, you think? Well, I I don't know. I think it depends on some of the choices that communities make, whether that be local communities, state or federal. Uh, We had more changes take place than I think people want to really take into consideration. You know, Mm. we had changes in family, divorces went up. We had changes in in imprisonization of of individuals and communities. Uh, For sure in jails, people were released. We had different types of crime that was taking place. We saw domestic violence take off. And we were already on a trajectory that was a little bit different than the prior, say, 30 to 40 years before that. Mm. Uh, we had just started a movement in terms of deincarceration. We had some folks uh, on the far right, uh, the Koch brothers in particular, had been funding a large number of initiatives to deinstitutionalize prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, move people out of prisons. Mm-hmm. And that was already in swing. And perhaps it was enhanced with, with COVID. And because we're going to be starting to see fewer people going into prison and more people staying in the community who are perhaps a little bit more criminally involved, we're going to see some differences than before. So then, Charles, let's zero in on Arizona a little bit for the next few minutes. Are we seeing similar trends here? Any differences? We are. But what I really think is important to emphasize is that Arizona is in pretty good shape Mm -hmm. when we're talking about the most serious forms of crime, especially homicide. Uh, We have a project here in in Arizona. It's called the Arizona Violent Death Reporting Program. It's sponsored by the CDC. We collect death certificate data, uh, homicide data, all from the state, uh, about every local law enforcement agency in the state, as well as all the medical examiners. And then we've supplemented that data with uh, other homicide data going back to about 1979. And what we find right now is we're quite frankly, at a point where we're at about average, maybe Mm. even a little bit below average, uh, going back over the past 44 years. So, uh, you know, while victimization is certainly a major concern in communities, and especially for the individuals and families that it affects, we're we're not at a point that is dramatically different than the past, at least on average. Keep in mind that uh, homicides were roughly uh, three to four times higher than they were now uh, back in the early 1990s during the crack epidemic. Uh, we have come a long ways since then. Uh, we're still at about half the homicide rate uh, as we were back in 2005 in Phoenix. Wow. Things have just dramatically improved. And while we did have a spike for two years, 
for the most part, uh, in, in the largest cities at least, things were still not as bad as they were from 2005 and prior to that. That's really interesting. You also talked about an urban-rural divide in crime rates in Arizona. What are we seeing there? Right. We're still trying to figure this out and we're looking into it. But what we have found is that with the largest agencies in Arizona, we have found that there's been a pretty dramatic drop in homicides. But on a state average, we've been seeing it tick up since about 2018. And as a matter of fact, 2022 was sort of a peak of homicide as a state as a whole until you go back to about 2003. Mm. So we're at a height as far as the state goes. But we've we've seen improvements like in cities like Phoenix, uh, Tucson. You know, these communities have, have, have really reduced uh, the number of homicides taking place in their communities, at least on a per capita basis. And so what we think might be taking place is in small and, and moderate sized communities that we're starting to see an uptick in homicide uh, gradually. Nothing real quick. Hmm. That's really interesting because it seems kind of counterintuitive. Like most of the national narrative about crime is like violent crime taking over cities, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, I think we, we want to keep in mind that this is also perhaps part of a larger issue taking place in, in rural and smaller communities. With regard to suicide, for example, we have some substantial issues with suicide in some of our rural counties in mm. Arizona. We also have some substantial issues regarding uh, overdose deaths, uh, yeah. opiates in particular. Uh, and so there is something taking place in rural and smaller communities in Arizona Uh, Unfortunately, oftentimes the state and the federal government pushes a lot of the resources towards some of our biggest communities. Sure. Communities like Phoenix, communities like Tucson. You know, when we when we dole out resources to smaller communities, some of those communities have historically been really resistant to receiving funds, particularly from the federal government. You know, it could be that that the lack of resources there are having an impact and the local communities just can't simply support their residents' needs in the way that that perhaps is needed. Interesting. So what were some of the things happening in cities that got the funding for this, right, that that worked? What are, what are the efforts underway that, that could maybe bring these rates back down? I mean, I tell you what, if you take a look at communities like Phoenix that has done uh, a really outstanding job with trying to match federal dollars with local dollars uh, on a number of initiatives, for instance, related to the police. Mm -hmm. You know, Phoenix Police Department was the first agency uh, that was federally funded in the United States to receive funding for body-worn cameras. Uh, Today, about all officers are are outfitted with body-worn cameras. And while people think about it in terms of a police accountability mechanism. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, it has much more broader implications. In one study, we found that incidents involving domestic violence where the officer was wearing a body-worn camera, we had substantially more arrests. We had substantially more convictions. Hmm. Those convictions were happening much more quickly. We believe that that's taking place in other crimes as well because the evidence is so robust. You also see substantial money being infused in terms of dealing with the crime gun problem here Mm -hmm. in Phoenix. Uh, Phoenix is invested substantially in a crime gun intelligence unit that has in part been supplemented with funds by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. And you have seen just massive capacity built to identify offenders who have used a gun in a serious 
offense, meaning drive-by shootings, retaliatory shootings, shootings that have involved another crime, such as a robbery uh, and the such. And just with a substantial amount of success where we're seeing significant increases in, in arrests as a result of that program. Uh, and then you also have a number of problem-solving efforts that have been moving forward within the city. So overall, you know, you do see some of these larger communities engaged in what we call problem-solving, yeah. where the police aren't simply responding to crime after it occurs, but they're getting out in front of it, developing their capacity to address problems before they occur and responding to it so that they're better prepared. And, and we do believe that that has been having a significant impact on on reducing serious violence in, in communities. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That is Charles Katz, director of the Center for Violence Prevention and Community Safety at ASU, joining us to talk about the latest data on crime rates here in Arizona and across the country. Charles, thank you so much for coming on and for your expertise here, for all the information. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Some state lawmakers are looking to help businesses in cities that have a higher minimum wage than the state's. But they do it by potentially hurting those cities' bottom lines. The measure, SB 1108, would essentially backfill firms that pay their workers more than the state minimum wage. Arizona's minimum is currently $13.85 an hour. Tucson's is set to rise to $14.25 after the end of the year. And Flagstaff's minimum wage is $16.80 an hour. My co-host, Mark Brody, talked about this idea with Valley economist Alan McGuire, president of the McGuire Company, and asked what he thinks about the proposal. It's an interesting idea. Um, I understand the motivation. I mean... There's a broad consensus among economists, not the world, but among economists, that minimum wages have significant negative impacts. It's not a very complicated uh, uh, process to think through, right? If you're selling hamburgers, there's sort of a market price for hamburgers out there, whether it's six bucks or nine bucks or whatever. Um, If your costs go up, as a business owner, you have two choices, raise your prices, endanger your sales, or cut your profits as a small businessman. So either way, something happens. And a lot of times what happens is we see the minimum wage go up and we see the number of employees go down. So the, so the business owner has to maintain his overall labor cost, but with fewer people. How does that jive, though, with what we're seeing right now, where with the minimum wage, both in Flagstaff and around Arizona going up, and businesses can't hire enough workers. They're offering, you know, 20 plus bucks to work at a fast food place. Right. That's called the market, right? The way to get more of something is to raise the price of it. And so if, if I want more employees and I have a favorite Wendy's that I drive by all the time and I watched it go $14, $15, $16, yeah. $18, uh, the sign's down now. <laughs> but that's how you solve that problem. Markets do those things. We don't need an artificial intervention to make that happen. Is it fair to the rest of the state if businesses in Flagstaff are getting this tax credit, basically getting getting backfilled when other businesses are also maybe having to raise their wages to bring in employees? Right. Well, the way that the, the legislators involved in this idea did it is pretty interesting because they said, we're going to take money out of the state shared revenues that go to that city or town and use that to partially, only partially, but partially offset the differential in the wages. So that's a little bit like saying you didn't eat your vegetables so you don't get dessert. You raised your minimum wage so we're going to punish you, the government, the local government. 
I'm not sure that it's a good idea for different levels of government to try and run other levels of government. We see that quite a bit. The feds tell us what to do. We tell cities what to do. Everybody wants to tell somebody else what to do. Yeah, I guess to that point, I mean, the Flagstaff minimum wage was approved by voters there. So in your mind, is it appropriate for the state? I mean, the state has been trying to deal with this for some time now in various ways. Is it appropriate for the state to tell Flagstaff voters basically, and the city of Flagstaff, you're going to get less money for roads and whatever else you're in your budget because your voters have decided that the minimum wage should be higher. Well, you know, a, a wise observer of government many years ago told me that everybody thinks that the government below them is incompetent and the one <laughs> above them is malevolent, right? Okay. So we think the federal government is terrible at the state level and we think the local government, cities and counties are incompetent. Well, that's not true. They're all competent at the level that they operate. And so I'm not a big fan of that counter-federalism system there, but... Um, Again, I think it's being driven by uh, the potential negative impacts that are happening for the minimum wage in Flagstaff. What kind of impact might this have on the budget of Flagstaff and potentially other cities if more of that money, that state-shared revenue money, is going to these employers? Right. Well, a couple things, right? The first thing that happens is um, their budgets come under pressure. We know that cities in particular in Arizona really receive a significant share of their overall revenue from state-shared income taxes and state-shared sales taxes. So when they lose that, it puts pressure on their other revenue sources and in turn puts pressure on their budget. Sort of the flip side is if if the tax credit being proposed here partially offsets the increased costs of that small business, that may allow that small businessman to add personnel or spend more money in the community. So some of that will come back through economic impact, but it's not a complete offset. Yeah. I'm wondering what you make of a potential comparison between what this is proposing and what we see at the federal level where certain states and localities have tax differentials with the federal government. Right. Well, that, that's, that's sort of the interesting thing. I mean, uh, about four or five years ago, we, we, there was a big federal tax reform act. And one of those things was to limit the amount of state and local taxes that are deductible from your federal income tax. Well, why did the proponents do that? They did it because if you live in a very high tax state, say New York, and you're paying tens of thousands of dollars more in, in state and local taxes than in a state like Arizona, by allowing you to deduct those high taxes, in effect, all the taxpayers of the U.S. were subsidizing the high taxes in New York State. Um, and so Republicans in particular supported a limitation on what they call SALT, state and local taxes. Uh, now the Democrats are in charge, and at least they have the White House, and they're th- trying to repeal that. But that same inequity applies here when the state tries to tell a local government what they should do or not do. I mean, different cities around the state, different counties around the state have different local or countywide taxes, right? So, for example, that burger in in Flagstaff might be less expensive than it is in, in Cottonwood, for example, based on the taxes of a particular community. Is there a way to make that uniform or is that even desirable? Well, I think, I, I think you have to let people associate with people that they like. Right? So if you, if you want to live in Yavapai County or Prescott, you're going to be living in a more conservative neighborhood, uh, probably a lower tax neighborhood than if you live in Flagstaff and Coconino County. But people vote with their feet. And so if you think that Yavapai is too conservative, you can move to Coconino or vice versa. I think that's a good thing. I think people should have that freedom to associate with the folks they like. Do you think – I'm going to ask you a political question, which I know you love. Do you think that this bill has a chance of being signed into law given who is on the ninth floor now? I think that's hard. 
Governor Hobbs is relatively new, but what we've seen so far is she seems to be very respectful of local governments. There was a bill to eliminate uh, residential rental taxes Mm -hmm. at the local level, which was intended to help affordable housing. But her mayors, I'm sure, called her and said, we live on that revenue. We need that revenue. And so she responded to those mayors and said, no, if you use that analogy, this could be the kind of bill that she would veto. But I think it has a ways to go before she gets to her. Right. Well, and mayors presumably would have a very similar argument, at least some mayors, to to that residential uh, rental tax bill as they would to this, right? Yes, they would. They would. And for twofold, they would say, first of all, stay out of our business, right? Sort of a philosophical argument. But secondly, this is cash money. This is cash money we're losing. We can't afford this. Right. Interesting. All right. That is economist Alan McGuire, president of the McGuire Company. Nice to see you again, Alan. Good Thank to you. see you, Mark. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. At the start of the pandemic, prisoners who worked off-site were largely sent back to prison. The work stopped, and with it, the meager amount of money they earned to pay for things like regular soap and toothpaste. At Perryville Women's Prison in Goodyear, most of those jobs stopped in March of 2020, except for those at Hickman's Family Farms, where many of the state's eggs come from, and one of the state's prison system's largest clients. But for the first time ever, the women who worked at Hickman's were sent to live on Hickman's property and what our next guest says amounted to a prison camp so they could continue the backbreaking work. Freelance journalist Elizabeth Whitman has been writing about Hickman's for years, and now she has a new piece out in Cosmopolitan magazine about the women who were sent to live at Hickman's during the pandemic. I spoke with her more about it. So the Department of Corrections and Hickman's worked together to create this setup because in March 2020, the Department of Corrections was basically implementing lockdowns. And so any incarcerated people who usually went outside prison walls to work were not allowed to do that. Mm. But Hickman's is pretty dependent on incarcerated labor. So they really needed people. And they came up with this way to make sure that people didn't have to cycle in and out of prisons in order to continue working for them. Yeah. And this was the first time anything like this had ever been done? As far as my reporting showed, yeah, um, I spoke with a couple of experts who said that they had never heard of anything like this, where incarcerated people were housed on private property so that they could continue working for the private company that housed them while they lived there. Right. Was it actually safer in terms of COVID? Like that was kind of the reason they were moved, correct? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to compare like the general prison population to the women who lived at Hickman's, we don't have we don't have access to really precise numbers. But most of the women that I spoke with got COVID while they were there, and mm. I also obtained records at various points throughout this this work camp setup that showed that women were getting COVID and being sent back to Perryville, the women's prison, in order to recover. And mm. so it's it's kind of hard to say whether they got COVID at higher rates when they worked at Hickman's versus. Uh, women who were still at Perryville and living in Perryville, but it did not by any means like protect them from getting COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So explain to us, Elizabeth, how this worked. Like they were living on Hickman's property, but kind of off site of where they worked. They were sort of bussed in. Who was in charge of them? Yeah. So when I, I asked the Department of Corrections, who was responsible for operations and maintenance, like making sure that the meals were provided and that the porta potties were clean. Um, and the Department of Corrections told me that Hickman's was responsible for those services. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if they had vans or buses, but they were 
being, they basically commuted from the camp on Hickman's private property to the job sites. Why was it women prisoners in particular that worked in these jobs? So as as far as my reporting was able to uncover, um, there were two reasons that David Shin, who was then the Department of Corrections director, gave. And one of them, he said, was that women were more compliant. And then the other, he said, was that women had been uniquely trained to do the jobs to continue Hickman's operations through the pandemic. So let's talk a little bit about the work and the conditions then. I mean, you talked to a lot of women who worked there uh, under these conditions. What was it like for them? What were their jobs? Pretty much all of the women I spoke to said that this was hands down the hardest work they'd ever done in their lives. Women were working with birds. They vaccinated hens. They culled roosters. And then somebody needs to clean the machines that process all of the eggs. And so they would scrub and clean these machines that would have dried yolk and eggshells and um, other grosser things on there until they passed inspection and Mm. were sanitary. So this sounds like it was pretty grueling work and, and grueling hours? Yeah, yeah, absolutely grueling work. Women described being really exhausted. Um, there was one woman who told me she would sometimes think to herself, like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And then she would pray, just pray for strength to get through it. And they did work long hours. We didn't obtain super detailed records, but women said that they would often work extremely long shifts and they were very, very tired at the end of it. Yeah. So prison labor and prison labor for private companies is not unheard of. How are prisoners paid? Um, how does sort of the compensation system work? Because it's it's incredibly low amounts of money, but also like necessary money for prisoners, right? Yeah, exactly. So the women that I spoke with said that they, a lot of them really needed the money not only to be able to afford just necessities, certain necessities in prison, um, but also to save money for when they got out. Their wages, base wages started at four twenty-five an hour and went up to five twenty-five an hour, which is compared to other prison jobs actually quite high, but compared to jobs outside prison is is not. Okay, so let's talk then about some of the context of this. You reported on Hickman's for a long time before this particular piece. Um, And this is definitely not the first time Hickman's has been in the spotlight because of accusations of unsafe, sort of difficult working conditions, right? Correct. Yeah. I had previously reported on injuries that incarcerated workers reported getting at Hickman's and were, were suing the company over. And that is something that I found continued through the pandemic. There was one woman who who I interviewed who is who is currently suing Hickman's because she lost part of her thumb while working there. And so based on the lawsuits and based on everything that women told me, it's it's hard and dangerous work and people's bodies are on the line. So, I mean, did you get a response from Hickman's to some of these accusations? What about from the Arizona Department of Corrections? Are they responding? Yeah, so Hickman's never responded to any of my requests for comment, and I did ask the Department of Corrections about some injuries, and I did not 
get a response. So the last thing I want to hit on here, Elizabeth, before we let you go, is just uh, one of the, I think, sadder notes in the piece is, is um, you got to know some of these women pretty well and talk to them about their stories and, and why they did this work and, and how hard it was. You also talk about how uh, many of them still said that they were very grateful for it. I mean, why was that? Why do you think that is? You know, it was different for for every woman. Some really were grateful because they needed the money. Um, they needed to save up for when they got out because getting out of prison entails a lot of costs and you have to get an apartment and you need to get a car and they wanted to have money to be able to start their lives again when they got out. There were other women who really wanted to pass the time and not just sit in prison or do yard jobs for however many years they were incarcerated for. And there were some women I spoke to who, in retrospect, said that the job taught them that they'd really do anything. Hmm. And now that, you know, they did the hardest job they've ever done in their lives. And now they're not afraid to like tackle, tackle any job, like no job is ever going to be that difficult. And I think that's something that they, they carry with them. You know, I think it's also important to note that women could be grateful, but also like really kind of horrified and disturbed by the work at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like they were they were very grateful for the income. They were grateful for something to do, but they also recognized that it was truly like grueling, exhausting, dangerous work. All right, we'll leave it there. Elizabeth Whitman is a freelance journalist. The new piece appears in Cosmopolitan magazine. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on and for explaining this story to us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. There are a lot of parenting books out there, but there are probably not a lot of them like the one written by our next guest. Keith Gessen says he wrote the book out of desperation and that for the first few months of his son's life, he was merely surviving. Raising Rafi the first five years is what came out of that. My co-host Mark Brody spoke with Gessen and started with what prompted him to write this kind of book, because as he says, so many parenting books are advice about this or suggestions about that. And this book is neither of those things. This book is really seemingly kind of an honest appraisal of him as a soon-to-be parent and then as a parent. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I found the advice books um, mostly well-meaning and for me, ultimately useless, (laughs) uh, disappointing. Um, They didn't work. And every time I would read one to kind of address one of the issues we were having um, as new parents, I felt like uh, a failure when I couldn't do it. I wanted to describe the experience of what it was actually like. And I, I kind of wanted to write a book that felt a little bit like that to, to kind of share my experience with other parents, um, to let them know that uh, somebody else had gone through some of the same stuff. Did you find that other parents were willing to talk about some of those things? Um, And I only ask because it seems like one of those things where, like, if your kid is having trouble sleeping or if they're throwing their food on the floor, things like that, like, parents maybe will talk about that. But, like, the feelings that you have as a parent and some of the feelings you expressed in the book, that seems like some of the stuff that parents, and maybe this is just especially with dads, aren't as willing to open up about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a real gender uh, issue or, or dynamic here. I, 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 well, I don't know what women's conversations are like, but, but I know that, that 
among dads, you know, we, we do tend to talk about misbehavior in a, in a way that I, I think sometimes moms might not, but that's a kind of definitely an, uh, kind of open subject for, for discussion. Whereas, yeah, our kind of experiences, our feelings about it, that's something dads are not as good at, at talking about. But we certainly have those feelings, um, you know, and, and, you know, one of the most intense feelings that we have is just sort of frustration and sometimes anger, which, you know, I found as a dad, I, I, I experienced much more of than I expected. One of the things that I found so interesting, though, was as you write, in some cases, maybe more than some cases, your anger or frustration with your son really had almost in some ways more to do about yourself than it did about him or his behavior at the time, right? You know, some of the things he did were objectively very annoying. Um, you know, I had I had to move my car for alternate side parking. He's taking like 45 minutes to put on his pants. But one of the things that in the, in the parenting books, it's almost described as, you know, being this, this parenting relationship almost outside of time or stress or, you know, your your marriage, right? It's just you and the kid. And if you just kind of do everything by the book, it'll be okay. And yeah, I, I found, you know, stress at my job, stress in my marriage played a huge role in how I would react to the fact that Rafi was, you know, uh, taking 45 minutes to put on his pants. <laughs> I right. sometimes had a lot more patience for that than, than other times. One of the things I talk about in the book is is being. I I, I come from a, a different culture. I, I I was born in the Soviet Union, and things were done in a in a different way in in my household. And that, you know, one of the things I, I ultimately came to understand is that it was inauthentic <laughs> or unnatural for me to pretend like I was this parenting robot. And kind of getting to that place in my own self understanding has been helpful. Uh, it hasn't made me, you know, a perfect parent, but it's made me a slightly less bad parent. <laughs> you know, as a, as a dad, it's just, it's made me think a little bit more about, you know, the way that I was raised and the things about that that I liked. And even the things that about it that I didn't like, but that are so kind of deeply inside of me, uh, like a kind of reverence for school. Uh, these are things that I, that I can't do anything about and it's okay. And as for Rafi, the thing that was, you know, it was a lot easier to see as he gets older, but that was really hard for me to see when he was a two-year-old and a three-year-old is that he's really a separate person. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and like he just, there's some things that he's, going to be good at and there's some things that he's not going to be good at and there's some things that he's going to want to do and other things that he's not going to want to do and I shouldn't take it so personally and and just understanding that he's he's a separate individual it, it, it took me a long time to kind of wrap my mind around that but I'm getting there what has that process been like for you to to make that realization because I think about with my own kids like 
you do things with them when they're little that you think they're going to like, but really you're trying to do things that you will be okay doing and that you also hope that they like. <laughs> but at a certain point, they start having their own opinions. And, you know, maybe you want to, you know, you want to have a catch with them in the backyard, but they don't like baseball. Or you want to listen to the radio with them, but they don't like the same kind of music as you do. Like, What was that process like for you to go from, you know, he is this this tiny person that, you know, can't complain about what we're doing to having his own opinions and maybe saying, Dad, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to do this. Yeah, well, I mean, the for me, the conundrum is, well, but if you don't teach him how to catch a baseball, <laughs> um, he's never going to want to play catch, right? right. He's not going to enjoy it because he can't catch. So that to me, and I, I still think it's kind of an unresolved uh, mystery, right? I mean, how you how you teach them something um, to kind of create the foundation for them to then make the decision, well, actually, I don't like this. <laughs> and it seemed like there were so many things, um, like it seemed like oh, practically every decision we made uh, kind of had that double edge to it. At this point, Rafi has rejected almost everything <laughs> that I have um, tried to kind of jam down his throat, right? Whether it's sports or, you know, Russian culture. And yet, on the other end of it, he's just an interesting and, and kind of delightful person that I really like hanging out with. I've gotten better at just kind of enjoying, you know, the person that he is. Right. Uh, so that's been nice. And, you know, he has a younger brother. So I might still get a hockey player. <laughs> you know, the dream has not, the dream has not died. I do. I write about this stuff. I do try to get into my experiences and my feelings, but as a kind of dude in the world, uh, I am like many other men, not particularly good at talking about my feelings. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That is Keith Gesson, an author. His book is called Raising Raffi, The First Five Years. Keith, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you for having me. It was, it was delightful. little honesty for your show today. That'll do it for today's Wednesday edition. Be sure to join us again tomorrow morning at 9 with much more. And remember, you can always join in the conversation on Twitter. I am at Lauren Gilger. Mark Brody is at Mark W. Brody. And the show is also on Instagram now, so look for us there. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.